0: In 2019, only 5% of Americans worked from home. Today, many organizations are navigating what hybrid, remote, and in-person work looks like. In this episode, we look at the data that's now emerging from Gallup, and perhaps more importantly, the questions managers should be asking to help frame what's next. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 646. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the pieces of wisdom we are all looking for right now is perspective on this new way of working. We have some distance now from the start of the pandemic and the massive change it made in the ways we all work, not only how we show up in our work mentally, but also how we show up Physically, in so many ways. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert back to the show from Gallup who's going to help us look now at what the data is starting to show in the surveys and the research about how organizations, managers are answering this question of how we've changed and perhaps more importantly, What do we do next now that we know what that data looks like? I'm so glad to welcome back Jim Harder. He is Chief Scientist for the Workplace at Gallup. He's led more than a thousand studies of workplace effectiveness, including the largest ongoing meta-analysis of human potential and business unit performance. He's the best-selling author of 12, The Elements of Great Managing, Well-Being, The Five Essential Elements, Well-Being at Work, and the number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, It's the Manager. He has also published articles in many prominent business and academic journals. He's the author now of Gallup's newest book with Jim Clifton, Culture Shock, An Unstoppable Force is Changing How We Work and Live, Gallup's Solution to the Biggest Leadership Issue of Our Time. Jim, what a pleasure to have you back.
1: Thanks for having me again Dave. Great to be with you. The the
0: word culture shock is perfect for the phrase rather for the book because this has been a huge culture shock on how we've all rethought how we work and where we work in the recent years. And before we get into that though I think like a little bit of perspective here is helpful. I know you and everyone at Gallup are always thinking so much about context. And thinking about context if we if we set the clock back 100 years in the early 1900s, you point out 40% of people were employed by farms, at least here in the United States. Today, of course, that number is less than 1%. But we've had a similar culture shock in how we've changed about how we work and where we work. In 2019, less than 5% of people in the United States worked from home. That's changed a whole bunch in the last few years, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, we hit- there's It was around 5 or 6% or so even before the pandemic hit. And uh, then suddenly, you know, a good chunk of the people, almost everybody in remote-ready jobs were suddenly working from home. But it's kind of interesting to me, Dave, that as you point out, it's not a foreign thing for our brains to be working from home. Um, if we go back into history, many people did that before the Industrial Revolution hit and people traveled to factories and, and other buildings like we have today. And so we sort of got into this habit of traveling to work And just thought it was part of the way we do work. But then the shift back home happened fairly naturally for most people. Not people in cramped quarters or with kids in the household is a challenge for a lot of people. But for a lot of people, it wasn't a difficult transition.
0: Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that until reading the book. But how much of human history, work from home, was the norm? And really what we've been doing these last hundred years has been the exception because of the Industrial Revolution and because of the way and the nature of technology and cities and all of that. And it's also so interesting coming on the different side of this now, like what has happened and what hasn't. Because one of the things you point out in the research is that a lot of leaders thought this would come back to quote-unquote normal, 90% of people getting back on site by this point and going back to what we were doing. But that's not really the case at all, is it?
1: No, it's, uh, people have really kind of started to settle in, but we still have about 30% of people in remote-ready jobs that are full-time remote still. So that's a big shift. You talk about six, six times the number that, that were pre-pandemic, five or six times, depending on how you, you know, which reference point you have from the data. But it's, it's been a major shift and there's definitely some learning that has happened. And it's interesting to me that still, you know, if you just look at preferences, nine out of ten people in remote-ready jobs want some type of work-from-home arrangement, whether it's hybrid or fully remote. So that's 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 quite a change in in what we learn. I think it's important for organizations to to honor the fact that people did learn there are different ways of working. You ask people why they have these preferences for remote work, and by the way, it shouldn't have surprised us that much because. Pre-pandemic, the number one desired perk was flex time, but then suddenly everybody got a chance to realize or at least people in remote-rated jobs got a chance to live it through a forced experiment. But you think nine out of 10 people now, that's a big change in preference. Some people have the opportunity, others don't. People that that, don't have their preferences met are, are certainly reacting to that. They have much more likely to say they're looking for another job. They're less engaged, and they're also more likely to say they're burnt out at work. So there are some ramifications to to not paying attention to people's preferences, but that's only part of the story I think. I think I think there's a bigger picture we need to consider other than just individual preference.
0: Yeah, indeed. And you write Gallup finds that 50% of US employees now want their work and life blended. But it's important to know that most remote ready employees always wanted work and life blended. When you think about the data you're seeing right now, what do we know about how that's looking like in a lot of organizations for what, what hybrid looks like, how people are going to, for those who can, go to the office versus working from home? Do we have a sense of what that, what that looks like?
1: Well, we've got a good chunk of people that are, that are being given, their organizations are at least giving them the opportunity to work hybrid where they're coming to the office. Most, the preferences for most people in terms of days are Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, that's what they prefer. A Smaller percentage are going to the office on Mondays and Fridays. And to me, it's interesting how people are actually making those decisions because it it isn't one way. You get some cases where employers and leadership are saying, here's the days we come into the office, and that's about 31% of the people are, uh, and this is really recent data. We update this qu- quite often. 31% are saying their employer or their leadership are telling them when to come to the office. 23% say it's their direct manager's supervisor who's kind of instructing that. 35%, the biggest percentage, say they just, it's just entirely up to them. They decide on their own when they come into the office and when they work from home. And then 12, only 12% say they work it out with their team. They discuss it with their team. And uh, the reality is, though, that 12% are the high, most highly engaged. It, but it's a method people use the least. 46% of that group are engaged. The national average right now is 34% engaged. So it's, it's well above the national average. The global average is 23% engaged. So they're, they've doubled. that. Just doing that alone doubles engagement globally, just deciding with your team. And that speaks to, I think, a bigger consideration that organizations should have about about where we work. And that's it's a commitment to our team as much as it's a decision we should make on our own.
0: I'm so glad you highlighted that because that was one of the points I highlighted in the book more than any other this one. the option most associated with high levels of employee engagement. my work team decides together was the one companies use the least, and I thought it's that really interesting of like how that looks. Do we know of organizations that are utilizing a team to make that decision, and the manager I'm imagining driving some of that. Do we know what that looks like that's different than what a lot of other organizations are doing?
1: Well, I, th- I think that the important thing and what we're seeing work is that they consider hybrid work, for instance, you've got a framework, but you also have some flexibility within that framework. And you need what organizations need right now is, is some predictability so that when people show up, their colleagues are there. There's nothing more depressing than than taking the long commute into work, which, by the way, is the number one reason people cite for not wanting to come to the office is the commute. So if you're actually on a commute and you're pursuing something, the commute isn't as bad. And when you get there, you've got your colleagues there. And so when you decide with your team, you can build in some predictability about about that asynchronous communication or maybe synchronous. Some people have jobs where they rely on their coworkers a lot. But I think the criteria that organizations that are effective at this are using is, one, they are considering individual performance and how people perform best individually. But second, they're considering and enforcing a conversation around how we collaborate best and what actually happens when we are together, whether it's innovation, whether it's fun, whether it's uh, solving some problems you wouldn't have solved otherwise, whether it's a responsibility to to some colleagues that really get a a charge out of seeing people in person. You may not, but maybe your colleagues do. So having a plan is really important. And so for the 35% are just making it entirely up to them, I think you're missing out on something unless you live in a location where you just can't get to an office that that certainly makes sense and I think some people can be very effective if they're working fully remote, but you have to be an exceptional person and you have to have an exceptional manager to make that work because we're finding our data now dave that for 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 all the unintended reasons a physical a lack of physical proximity does start to relate to psychological distance when people are not together physically. And I don't think people want it to be that way, but it kind of works out that way in human nature that in-person time does matter. We build different kinds of relationships. We build trust in person, particularly for new people and younger people. I think it's a really important thing to to be considering.
0: Yeah. It's one of the things I really appreciate about the data and the perspective from you and Gallup in the book is this isn't a either or right or wrong. This is a there's a lot of both and here. And the the heart I hear mm-hmm. behind this in the data is intention. And I'm I'm quoting you now. You write, employees crave autonomy, but they also want clarity. They want smart autonomy, autonomy that makes sense for how they can get their work done. What they don't want are general rules that don't make sense to them. And part of the message I hear here is just, especially those of us in management positions of Let's be conscious of some of that both and and knowing that those preferences are going to be in different ways and actually open up that conversation and be a little bit smarter about like how do we provide that autonomy versus either extreme of like, okay, here's all the set days or you figure it out on your own. And I was really struck by some of the questions that you suggest that managers might ask as part of this regular dialogue with employees to get to some of that smart autonomy, and I was wondering if maybe we could look at a couple of those of just bringing those into the conversations that managers are already having, ideally, with employees. But now it's 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 adding in this new context of this world that, of course, is changing so much.
1: Yeah, I think managers need to be intentional about asking the right questions. And part of it is asking people how they themselves are individually productive and when their most productive times are individually but also getting them to reflect on what the best collaboration times have been with their colleagues i think for people that were they had some experience together had some years of experience together when the pandemic hit and they could work via zoom or teams or other video channels it w- was fairly seamless because they've already built trust but you know one of the qu- one of the questions we've been asking managers to ask employees this is kind of low-hanging fruit but most people t- tend to ignore it or at least just don't think about asking it and that's in your best life imaginable are your work and life separated or or do you prefer work that's more blended throughout the day with your the rest of your life and as you mentioned earlier Dave we get a 50-50 split on whether people are we call them splitters and blenders splitters are people that divide work and life Blenders are people that prefer to mix work and life, and that can change throughout your life uh, based on your life situation a little bit. But some of it is just preference about separating work and life and blending it. And we found both groups can be equally engaged and productive. But if you don't ask someone about that, you may easily offend them. You might contact someone when they're away from work and they're, they're in that separation mode or you might wonder why somebody isn't working at one o'clock in the afternoon when they might be working out or maybe maybe they had to go take care of a kid or something, but then they're working later at night. So if you don't have that conversation, there's no way that you can effectively manage somebody in terms of what their work style is. And, And teammates need to know that about each other as well. But those conversations unfortunately don't happen, but managers can force those conversations, but they can also ask questions like, when do you bring your best value to customers? starts to bring some objectivity to how we make our decisions. That's that smart autonomy. I think we need to honor the fact that it's part of human nature to want autonomy. People learned autonomy in spades when they had the experience of the pandemic, that forced experience. They learned they don't have to commute quite as often as they used to, which we just assumed we did. And that that new freedom you're not going to strip that away from people without some consequences it's it's called it's a principle of behavioral economics called the endowment effect where uh, when we get something it's much more difficult to take it away even something very inexpensive like a coffee cup costs we value it more once we have it than than before we had it and uh, fr- this new freedom is not not a not a coffee cup it's a it's a pretty significant thing to us psychologically but we've got to blend that with getting our work done in a way that works for our colleagues and our customers as well. And I think that's where management leadership comes in.
0: Yeah, indeed. And I'd love to pull a thread on a couple of these because I think what you said, they're so key that what's interesting now than in 2019 is we all have, I mean, Gallup, of course, has been doing tons of data on this for years, but we all now have all this personal and team and organizational data of like what worked and what didn't as we all tried this. And some of us had really good experiences and some of us crashed and burned and there was a lot of in-between on work from home, remote, hybrid, still, of course. And now, what a great opportunity to ask some of these questions because people have had experience, like what parts of your job can you do best at home? What parts can you do best at the office? Where do you feel connected? And the thing I think we're missing is we haven't like, a lot of us like actually said those questions out loud. Like we've kind of observed, we've kind of gotten a feeling. Maybe it comes up in the context of a one on one and we sort of know that about our teams, but we haven't like explicitly asked those questions. And I think like uh, these four or five questions just starting there, it's huge just to surface like getting there more quickly than rather than spending kind of six months a year trying to figure that out.
1: Yeah, it it should. Hopefully, it will speed it up for people so they have the conversation ahead of time instead of just trying to. I think historically, when we saw people in the office, we just kind of made assumptions, even assumptions about whether people are productive or not. And then when we we're suddenly from a distance, I had a lot of people ask me, "How do we know people are productive from a distance?" And uh, I asked back, "How'd you know before?" Mm. And so we need to rethink performance management a little bit. When we have more autonomy, we also need higher accountability. Well, we need accountability anyway, because people need to know how they're progressing. And to have good accountability, though, managers need to be in touch with people on a regular basis to know what they're doing and to help them set goals, to involve them in setting goals. That's low-hanging fruit. To recognize them when they do good work, that's a that's a reinforcement for what what, what productivity is. And th- they need some, some ways to help people know whether they r- reach their goals or not. There's no way to know whether they're reaching their goals unless you have discussions with them, and we'd argue, at least once a week what we call meaningful feedback. Feedback itself has been kind of a people repellent for decades, maybe a century. But meaningful feedback is something people want if you do it right. And we had a chance to kind of dig into what some of those elements were to get that right. But you really can't uh, close that gap between where people should be working and and what makes them most productive unless you have a real discussion about uh, past experiences and productivity.
0: Yeah, indeed. Indeed. You know, and I'm I'm thinking also about that distinction you made between the splitters and the blenders, and that a lot of us tend to approach one of those two ways or some version of it of wanting to have work and life kind of separate and versus like blending it throughout mm-hmm. our day. And I thought what was really interesting, too, is in looking at the data, there are, you break that down by generation, and there are some small variances but my takeaway looking at the chart was like wow when you look at generation x and then if you look at the newest generation entering the workforce gen z the numbers are almost the same as far as preference. like it's it's about 50-50 even across generations isn't it
1: yeah it seems kind of counterintuitive doesn't it you might think that younger people are just going to more, be more likely to be blenders and older people might be more like splitters but yeah you've got preferences a large proportion of preference on both sides no matter how you cut it, even by gender and, and other cuts, but yeah, those generations, and even by job types, you get a little bit higher uh, preference for splitting among production workers. But that's probably just due to what they're used to, yeah, in terms of the types of jobs they have, where they tend to be a bit more split, but nine to five or eight to five clocks and that sort of thing. But that was a big surprise to me, Dave. I, I did I did not expect that it would be that divided across various categories
0: it me too because my assumption was the same as yours that oh the the generations entering the workforce now folks are much more comfortable with blending their work and life and integrating and it turns out the data says no not any more so than than generation x and baby boomers and like some of the other demographics and i for me that was just like a moment of like wow I need to ask like people I'm working with like how do you approach work? Like how do you like to interact with your day? And I think again goes back to our earlier point of what an opportunity to just surface that with a team and kind of talk through what those that distinction is between between a splitter and a blender and like how do you like to work? So that way as you're managing someone as you're working on a team and as a team's deciding together how this looks like how do we do a better job of honoring everyone's preferences, knowing that we're never going to do that perfectly? But just just asking, just opening the question, like, gets you way down that road.
1: Yeah, we learned in some of our research even before the pandemic that younger workers uh, were much uh, more savvy about the fact that work and life are kind of intertwined more, probably because they grew up with technology and they recognize that. But even given that, you've got 51% of Gen Z and young millennials who are splitters and 49% are blenders. So even though they realize work and life are going to be kind of intersect through technology, you know, half of them want to cut it off at some point, and they really value their well-being and the other parts of their life as well. And so I think that's that's important. And I think also to reemphasize, people can be productive in either of those two groups. It's just a matter of knowing that and honoring it. And if if we lead with, Setting clear priorities and goals, having the right kind of ongoing conversations with people and having high accountability so people know how well they're doing, we can be successful in either one of those situations.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, and that gets to where you were alluding to a moment ago of like what do some of those regular conversations look like? We've talked about some of the questions that we might bring in, but the the thing that I highlighted more than anything else in the book is this line. Managers account for 70% of the variance in team engagement. And this comes right back to the research that we've heard from Gallup for years on the importance of the manager. Uh, You wrote a whole book on it previously. It's, it's, It's about the manager. And I'm quoting the book now. When our chief scientist was asked to define, as specifically as possible, the most important habit of a great manager, the answer is this. One meaningful conversation per week with each team member." That, of course, begs the question, what's meaningful? When you think about that and you look at the data, what is the data showing that is meaningful and actually making that happen?
1: Yeah. So we had a chance to ask employees about the last conversation they had with their manager and accumulated those data. And a smaller percentage that you might than you might think said they actually had an extremely meaningful conversation. But of that group, 80% who said they had an extremely meaningful conversation were engaged. The, national, the, the global numbers are 23%. The national numbers in the U.S. are 34% right now as we speak. So it's not a gradual incline, but it's still, you know, you talk about a third of the people are highly engaged, 80% if they have had a meaningful conversation with their manager in the last week. So we had to do a follow-up, of course, and we had asked people what happened in that conversation and then compare that to people that didn't have meaningful conversations. And there are some patterns that emerged. One was... They said that conversation included recognition. Now, that might seem simple, just recognize people. But to do that right, you've got to, one, know how they like to be recognized. And only 10% of people in a study we did with Work Human, we found that only 10% of people are even asked how they like to be recognized. That's the laying fruit. Wow. You also need to know something about what they're doing in their job. So you have to be in touch with them enough to know, to give credible recognition. You've got to actually know what they did, either hear it from a colleague or observe it yourself. It's almost better if you hear it from a colleague because then you can say, well, this person told me you did this, and that adds even more credibility to it. Pe- people knowing that you talked about them behind their back in a positive way is a really positive thing for people. So recognition was one of them. Another one we we kind of alluded to earlier was collaboration. They said they had a discussion with their manager about collaboration, about how they collaborate best. Now, managers are in the best position to know each person's situation. That's why they're so valuable. But they are also in the best position to know what your coworkers how they collaborate best. They can hear from both sides and say, well, I think your this project would work really well if you partnered with this other person with different strengths in you. And so just a s- discussion about collaboration, even so much as as we're talking about when should we be in the office together because we know we're, we've got some asynchronous things that we're doing and we need to bring them together. And uh, this would be a good time to do that and to, to kind of nudge them that direction.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of where those questions come in from before of like, okay, rather than just having the corporate policy of like, here's the days we come in, or you kind of are left to your own, the manager is prompting some of those questions, conversations like, oh, so-and-so is doing this, you're doing this, I know your preferences. like, let's talk about what that looks like as a team. I, I see an opportunity here for the manager to be a bit of a catalyst for like opening up that because we know from your data that teams that are doing that together, it's really different how people are showing up in the engagement level.
1: Yeah, they feel they start feeling like this is a commitment to my team members, and uh, that's a more powerful motivation than my leader told me, or I just decided on my own. And it's easy for all of us to think about what's good for us, but when we have that conversation, either with their man, both ideally both with your manager and with your colleagues about here's what works best for my colleagues. I just to get personal, I've got I've got people on my floor that have told me point blank that they really. It means a lot to them to see me and other people in the office, in person, not every day, but enough that, that in-person time. And these are, I'm talking about people that have their heads down in the data mm. and you wouldn't have even expected unless you listened to it, but that they want that personal interaction. And when I have it, I like it too, even though I'm, I have high focus, you know, I could, I could easily sit at home, do my work, get it done. But when I have that interaction, I can tell it makes a difference. Some people have to just relearn that, right? Relearn that that in-person time is very different than the time sitting in front of a, a computer. But the third thing, Dave, that came out in, in these meaningful conversations was goals and priorities. Think about how often things change in our work lives. And if, if we're not on top of that and we wait, we could be working on something that's just wasting time. And ma- managers are in the best position if they involve people in setting their goals and priorities because they tend to be closer to the action. So that, that's, that's a big one, another kind of piece of low-hanging fruit. Then finally, the, the other big piece to meaningful conversation was strengths. The managers knew the strengths of the individual and were able to guide them to high performance through their natural tendencies or strengths. And that makes everything a lot more efficient because I'm showing you that I know you in a way that's unique to you me in a way that's unique to me. We start building some trust that we close the distance that is too often to occur and it uh, occurs too often now in hybrid type environments. And we can close that distance if we know each other and we can speed up our conversations, make them more efficient. But another surprise, Dave, was these conversations can last 15 to 30 minutes if we have a cadence. I'm so glad
0: you mentioned that because I was struck by that too. I think our typical default setting for a lot of managers who are doing one-on-ones is to set up a one-on-one for 30 to 60 minutes. And it's interesting that the length of the conversation can be a factor
1: here too, and not in the way that we often think. Yeah, we can move from one to the conversation to the next quickly if we do it weekly with a cadence. If we don't have a cadence, we've got to slow down, backtrack, get to know what someone's up to. If you know what someone's working on, and you've got a record of that, and, and you've got it in your head, and you meet with them the next week, you don't have to relearn that. You can build on top of the previous conversation, and it creates more fluidity. It creates sort of a flow between the individuals, and it builds on the relationship too, because the individual knows that you know them and what they're up to. And that's a lot different from a manager or relationship where, you know, if they feel like you're going through the motions, and you're not really into what they're doing.
0: Yeah. yeah, And I think that's the danger we all have. And I know that I've made this mistake of one-on-ones becoming a little bit transactional. We've got our 30 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever once a week, once every other weekend. Um, you write, in fact, 15 to 30-minute conversations have a greater impact than 30 to 60-minute conversations if they occur regularly. But if managers don't give employees feedback every week, they will need longer conversations to catch up. For me, that just comes back to the word you Surfaced earlier, meaningful, right? Like, if we really use that 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 20 or whatever it is, well, and are asking some of these questions about how do you show up? Where do you work? Where do you do your best work? How do you serve customers effectively? We can cover a lot of ground in a shorter period of time. And it gets back to what we've been hearing on the show for years now of like just regular coaching interactions, too, and regular conversations. The more often that's happening, like
1: the better. And even you can get as specific since you know what they're working on, you can get as specific as this project you're just working on. What worked best? What got in the way? Who did you yeah. work best with? Yeah. So you get as specific as a as a particular project someone's working on, and it makes it really credible. Get much give much better recognition. You can offer much more specific insights and and advice, and maybe you have to do something to help them with their job to remove some barriers for them. But you don't really get to do that unless you're talking in specifics with them and you can do that with those weekly conversations.
0: Yeah, indeed. And by the way, shout out to the Clifton Strengths assessment. You mentioned strengths a moment ago. That's a wonderful entry point for starting to surface some of those conversations about what people do well or don't. And I thought interesting in the book, and if this has been in some of the research, I missed it, uh, Jim, but interesting that for teams, it's not even... So much having a distribution of strengths is, of course, great, but it's actually more the awareness of strengths, regardless of the distribution, that actually helps teams to be engaged, interact better. I, I, am I framing that right? I, I seem to remember hearing that distinction. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Dave. We we did some research where we looked at the composition of strengths on teams, and we didn't know what the answer would be. We we thought maybe there was a particular distribution of strengths that would help a team be more effective, and the, the reality is when you study teams, most of them come out with with quite a bit of variance in strengths. Maybe it's part of the grand design. We probably we probably have this within our families too. Most of us that have kids have learned they come out somewhat different <laughs> yeah, um, unless they're maybe identical twins, which they have the same genetics but 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 most most kids come out different and and we notice that pretty quickly as parents, and that's probably why families kind of worked well together in the old times and why small groups of people tended to work well together and balance each other out is because they became quickly aware that they had different strengths that could do different things. And that's, that's quite an insight when you figure that out. But when teams become build that kind of awareness, they're kind of reaching into the grand design of we're different for a reason. And let's, let's honor each other instead of sitting across the table and saying, you should be more like me. Let's, let's recognize maybe you are like me in a lot of ways and that, that builds us a bond, but, but maybe... You're different in a way that makes our team better and we have some language around that now so yeah we were learning that in the research it led to higher levels of engagement if you just had had that awareness and higher levels of performance jim this is just
0: fascinating everything that gallup's doing thank you for all the work you and your team are doing to collect data and share it with us and i think what's what's great here is like we've all sort of have in our own experiences and teams and organizations we've all sort of have a sense of like okay what should I be asking? How's this going? What, are the, what does the distribution look like on my team? But like, I love that there's so much. We've got data now behind it because we've had some time and the questions to ask. What a great starting point. So I'm going to put a bunch of this in the episode notes for those who want to grab a couple of these questions, start bringing it into your conversations this week. And Jim, you've been on the show before, so you know that I often ask people what they've changed their mind on. I'm I'm curious on this book specifically. I mean, so much of course has changed in the last couple of years as you put the book together, looked at the research with your team, have been conducting all these studies. Coming away now this with the book and and this and and thinking about this with context, what if anything did you find that you changed your mind on here along the way?
1: Well, the thing that comes to mind, I've mentioned a few surprises I had, like the blender splitter thing was a big surprise in terms of the equal distribution of i i didn't expect that but a big surprise to me was i i thought that i knew of course knew that leadership exists for a reason but i thought people would be better through this let's say forced experiment at figuring out making their own best decisions about where they work best and i learned that leaders and managers do need to have the right kind of conversations with them to be able to navigate that appropriately it's so easy for people to say i can avoid the commute and not see the net value of it at least for for some of the time and it kind of reminded me that it, how, how important in person time is when we we did a study pre-pandemic quite a ways before the pandemic around social time and we found all kinds of social time matter but in in person time mattered the most but the total amount of time la- mattered less than the fact that you make it happen ah. and i thought i didn't think this that many people would default right back into full time Remote work, I thought there might be a gradual shift back. I knew that the learning from a behavioral economics standpoint would influence people a lot, but it, it does take the right leadership and management to not mandate, but there's nuanced leadership management now to not mandate, but to build the right structure, the right framework so that people and the right reasons so that people do make the right decisions. And I think a lot of organizations are still working on that. We're seeing right now, Dave, that. Full-time, we just reported it today, full-time remote employees are starting to drift away from their employers more. They feel a record level of low percent in feeling connected to the mission or purpose of their organization. Even though their engagement is still close to what it was earlier on, that particular element has dropped, which means there's there's starting to be more of a distance between employees and employers, and it's almost an unintended consequence of physical separation we're starting to see. So it's it's an important one for organizations to be thinking about getting it right and getting the right formula right.
0: Jim Harder is the co-author of Culture Shock, an unstoppable force is changing how we work and live, Gallup's solution to the biggest leadership issue of our time. Jim, thank you for all your work. So appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave. Great to be with you again.
0: If this was helpful to you, a few related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 409, Gallup's findings on the changing nature of work. That was one of the previous times Jim has been with us on the show. We talked about the importance of the manager in the work. And speaking of things changing, that's one thing that has not changed in any substantial way over the years that Gallup's been looking at how we can do a better job of really bringing out the best of people in the workplace is the importance of the manager, the individual manager at the end of the day makes such a difference in the engagement level of an employee productivity on so many levels. Gallup continues to show that in their research, as do so many others again and again and again. A great compliment to this conversation is the data behind that, Episode 409, for those details. Uh, Of course, we're all living in this world and working in this world where so much more is remote and hybrid. All of us are navigating that in some way. I'd also recommend Episode 537 for more there how to engage remote teams. Sadal Neely, Harvard professor, walked us through some of the key principles and tactics that we can use in order to engage folks in a remote environment. It is a different skill set than doing it in person, as so many of us have discovered in the past few years. Episode 537 is a place to start with some key tactics that can help you to engage a team, especially if you are leading a team that is doing a lot of remote and hybrid work. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 537 570 Effective Hybrid Team Management. Hassan Osman was my guest on that episode. Hassan is a brilliant writer, uh, has uh, produced so many books, has been on the show several times over the years, and in episode 570, walked us through some of the key strategies to be thinking about from a management scheduling tactical standpoint on how do you actually do hybrid team management. Again, a challenge so many of us are thinking about and dealing with each day. Episode 570, a good starting point for you. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. One of the topic areas inside the free membership is remote work. It's one of the several dozen topic areas. We've had so many conversations over the years, especially in the last few years on this topic. We're going to keep having them. And if you'd like to dive in further, I'd invite you to set up your free membership At coachingforleaders.com, it's going to give you access to the entire library, searchable by topic. You can access, of course, the full library on any of the podcast apps, but uh, it's not possible to search by topic on the apps very easily. So we've tried to make that as easy as possible on the website. When you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, that's one of the many benefits that's included. In addition, access to all of my past audio courses. There's almost a dozen audio courses in there that are there for you. You can easily track your progress so you know exactly where you've left off tons of details in there on a number of topics that will be helpful to you, plus a whole lot more. All of that is inside the free membership. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go for that. And if you've already had a free membership for a bit and you've been utilizing those resources, I hope you'll take the next step and discover more about Coaching for Leaders Plus. There's many additional benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. One of them is a monthly article from me on a long-form topic. I'm in Integrating many of the expert opinions and advice that we've heard on the show over the years. I'm bringing together books and resources on a particular topic and then going into depth on that in a monthly article. It's one of the key benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. Of course, I'm bringing in my perspective there too. So if you'd like to hear more from me, I hope you'll investigate Coaching for Leaders Plus. You can find out a lot more just by going over to coachingforleaders.plus. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Smith. Bonnie and I are back responding to your questions next week. If you've got one for us to consider, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback to get it our way so we can consider it. I hope you have a wonderful week and I'll see you back with Bonnie on Monday. Take care.